Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. What is happening, gang? We are geeked up about this one today. You have come to the right place if you are ready for some inside football information because today on the podcast, we are going to begin our several-part look at the life and times of NFL Hall of Fame coach Tony Dungy. And this is a fun one. We had so much fun putting these uh, last two podcasts together. This first part looks at Coach Dungy's career as a player, moving through his time as a head coach with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and everything in between. We've got it all in this one. We've got unique stories from Bill's perspective, some insights that I think nobody's heard about Coach Dungy the player, Coach Dungy the coach, opportunities of where this sort of kismet relationship could have kicked off, potentially, spoiler, in Carolina before we would get them together in Indianapolis a few years later. But this is a really fun one. So sit back, relax, get ready. This is the Inside Football Podcast with Bill Polian, and this is our first in a two-part look at the life and career of NFL Hall of Fame coach Tony Dungy. Very cool, guys. Well, hey, the clock is running, the light is lit, and we are live for another exciting episode of the Inside Football Podcast with Bill Polian. Uh, How is everybody doing today, guys? I know a few of us might be working hurt. (laughs) (laughs) When, When you're old, you're always working hurt. That's true. And when you're old, there's still a difference between pain and injury. (laughs) Well, let this be a lesson to all of our loyal listeners. Uh, The man, the myth, the legend himself is uh, playing hurt today and is way tougher than me because if it was me, I would not be recording today. But hey, uh, I think you guys probably know that about us. So in today's episode, we're going to do something a little bit different. So uh, usually we start with our glossary and our bios. Well, today and next week's episode are going to be singularly focused around one subject. We're going to hit a lot of different angles and look at what Rick has described as this kismet relationship, but we're going to look at the life and time and career of coach Tony Dungy um, from, you know, growing up through his football career and his football life with Bill. So this should be a fun and unique episode of the pod. So is everybody ready to roll? Let's do it. Let's do it. Cool. All right. Well, Anthony Kevin Dungy was born in Jackson, Michigan on October 6, 1955 to Wilbur Dungy, a science professor at Jackson College. And by all accounts, uh, Coach Dungy, if you're listening, your word's not mine, a world-class fisherman, potentially a better fisherman than you, and Cleo May Dungy, who taught Shakespeare and public speaking at Jackson High School. Hey, Bill, what were you doing in 1955? I I believe I was in seventh grade, uh, just beginning to... uh scratched the surface of what was an undistinguished athletic career. <laughs> well, you know, Tony uh, played uh, two sports in high school. He was a quarterback of the football team as, as well as a, 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 a excellent basketball player. 
Tell us about your athletic career at Mount St. Michael. Yeah, there's not much to tell. I, I jokingly said, although this is not far from true, I was the 41st guy on a 40-man team in football and uh, uh, played very limited role uh, simply because I really hadn't grown up yet. I, I was, you know, I was a late bloomer and, and, and one of those guys that my birthday is in December, so I, was kinda, I wasn't redshirted, that's for sure. Uh, the way they do with kids in grade school today. I also ran track, and, and I actually my favorite sport and probably the one I was best at was baseball. And I played extensively uh, in the New York City Baseball Federation, which played played upwards of 65 to 70 games a summer. So, uh, I, you know, I loved it. I loved everything about it. Wasn't very good at it. <laughs> Although there there is a baseball connection, few people know that Bill Polian did grow up to be a part owner of a Triple A baseball team. Yeah, it's absolutely right in South Bend, Indiana, and uh, uh, we had a lot of fun with it. Uh, the former governor of Indiana, Joe Kernan, was our our principal managing partner, and it, it was a uh, in many respects uh, a dream come true. Uh, although. I was a, a silent partner. I really didn't have much to do with the operation of the team, but I enjoyed seeing him play and proudly wearing the hat. <laughs> hey, look at that. You learn something new every day. One of, uh, I think, many of our listeners' dreams one day. But uh, Coach Dungy, as a middle schooler, was spent a lot of time in East Lansing. It is his parents uh, received their graduate degrees. And during this time, he was heavily influenced watching the football of Duffy Doherty and Michigan State. And even though his father was a Wolverine, he was very much influenced watching Coach Doherty and those Michigan State teams and often even dreamed of playing for the Spartans. But while he entertained the idea of basketball, I think Coach Dungy might have been potentially a stronger athlete than uh, our adorning host. But uh, Coach Dungy was an amazing basketball player in addition to a high school quarterback. And when Coach Doherty left Michigan State, uh, Coach Dungy uh, actually saw some of Coach Doherty's staff go to Minnesota, uh, including the legendary Tom Moore. So Coach Dungy would decide to go to the University of Minnesota to play quarterback under uh, Tom Moore. And this is kind of the first moment uh, as we were doing the research of these strange intersections of looking at these moments where it was almost destined or preordained for uh, Bill and Coach Dungy to hook up at some point in their careers um, at this moment of Coach Dungy getting the firsthand look at playing inside Coach Moore's offense. I, I was going to say, just for our listeners' sake, uh, there and 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 Bill's one of two people on this podcast who will remember this. <laughs> there were two big name Tom Moores in football. Aside from Tom Moore, the coach who we're going to talk about, this do not confuse him with the Tom Moore who played in the backfield of the championship Green Bay Packers with Paul Horning and Jim Taylor, who he himself actually made the Pro Bowl in '62, and when Paul Horning was suspended by. Pete Rosell for gambling, uh, he became the starter in uh, 63. Remember that, Bill? Yes, absolutely, I do. And the only, other, the only other thing I'll add is that my very first full-size football in life was an autograph Tom Moore football, and I won a lot of neighborhood pickup games with that ball. You know, in, in Tony's case, the relationship with Tom Moore starts in the recruiting process. As, as Tony and Tom explained it to me, 
first of all, it, it wasn't very prevalent to have black quarterbacks, even in those days. And uh, Minnesota had a history of black quarterbacks, African-American quarterbacks. Sandy Stevens had taken the Gophers to the Rose Bowl. And the idea of Tony being able to play quarterback at Minnesota was backed by the history of the school. Cal Stoll, who had been on the Michigan State staff, had become the head coach at uh, Minnesota. Tom Moore was, in essence, the offensive coordinator, and he recruited Tony. And that is a relationship that exists to this day. And, uh, and, and I would dare say that probably other than Coach Knoll, the guy that Tony most respects in football is, is Tom Moore and, and certainly has great affection for him. Tony also played on the freshman basketball team at Minnesota along with Dave Winfield. And I can't think of the name. The, the big star was a guy who went on to uh, to play in the NBA, and his name escapes me right now. But Dave Winfield and Tony Dungy were on that freshman basketball team at, at Minnesota as well. Hey, Scott, you want to get our crack research staff on this so we can tell about who that name was by the end of the podcast? Ron yeah. DeHagen. Ron DeHagen <laughs> is the name. It just came to me. There you go. That's how the sausage is made on the show. Our crack research staff is Bill's amazing brain. <laughs> <laughs> Here's another interesting intersection of fate or kismet or karma or whatever you want to call it. Ron Behagen is from the Bronx, where I am from. He went to a, yes. a different high school, but but from the Bronx. So uh, who knows? Anyway, that, that Tony was an excellent basketball player. Excellent. Bill, knowing how your paths would obviously cross in in this. Uh, kismet-like relationship with Tom Moore. Uh, tell us a little bit about Tom Moore just as a human being and why he has been one of the truly great coaches for for decades and decades. Well, he played at Iowa, uh, for far, I believe, for Forrest Evershevsky. Uh, like most coaches, was, was not a, you know, not a, a, a star player. Um, and then went into coach, uh, went into the Korean War uh, as an officer, where he, he met his wife, uh, Willie. She was overseas uh, at serving uh, in a support capacity. Um, and uh, and when he got out of the service, uh, he came back uh, and, and began a, a coaching career, which has lasted to this day. He's still coaching quarterbacks in in uh, Tampa Bay with Bruce Aarons. Um, he, uh, he, he first, he coached a lot of places at the collegiate level, Wake Forest, uh, I believe certainly, uh, Minnesota and, and most notably he was the, uh, receiver coach of the, uh, and, and, and essence, the offensive coordinator of the Pittsburgh Steelers, the great Pittsburgh Steelers steel curtain team. Um, and, uh, and then uh, went to a number of different jobs in the National Football League, uh, including in New Orleans for Mike Ditka. Uh, and then ultimately, uh, Jim Mora brought him to the Colts as the offensive coordinator uh, in uh, 1998, where, where we first began to work together. We knew each other a little bit 
and I knew him by by uh, a reputation for sure. Uh, and, and then uh, Tom stayed through throughout our time in Indianapolis, so 14 years there. And, uh, and and now back with Bruce. Bruce Aarons was the quarterback coach for us in 1998 on Jim Mora's first staff, and and now is a head coach at Tampa Bay, and and uh, obviously back with Tom once again. And so uh, Tom's going to continue to coach until they drag him off the field. I'm sure. <laughs> I saw that quote from him. They were going to have to drag him off the field. I think he's going to be 82 this year. Yeah. Yes, he will. And I worry about him, obviously, because of uh, the, the uh, Corona uh, virus yeah. issue. Um, he he his his greatest he has two incredible strengths, which are unique, uh, probably in any profession, but certainly in football. Um, he has the capacity to simplify things and be able to get players of different abilities and different uh, strengths to function in, a, in a, what amounts to a very simple system. Now, I'm going to oversimplify this, but it's more complex than this. But we had basically six running plays and about a dozen passing concepts. That was it. And, and our approach was we do what we do better than anybody else. We don't do a lot. One of the mantras that Tony always used was do what we do. Uh, and, and we don't do a lot, but what we do, we do exceptionally well. We do the ordinary in an extraordinary fashion. Tom has that ability um, to create an offense that, that does that. His, by the way, before he went with the Saints, he had great success with the Detroit Lions where no one has had success uh, with, with, with a, uh, this, a forerunner, uh, uh, one that, that looked similar to what, uh, an offense that we ran ultimately in Indianapolis with Peyton Manning. Um, and, and he's turned, you know, receivers have had record-breaking seasons under him. Of course, we had Reggie Wayne and Marvin Harrison, who Marvin's in the Hall of Fame, and Reggie will be, I'm sure, uh, relatively soon. Peyton will be, of course, this coming year. Uh, and so, um, but, but he's taken other great players uh, or less than Hall of Fame players and, and, and have them have great years uh, simply because his offense is all, 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 all encompassing, but very simple to learn and very simple um, to, uh, to understand. Uh, for example, the receivers don't switch sides. Marvin Harrison was always on the right, and Reggie Rain was always on the left. And uh, and people uh, in the media, since they can figure that out, said, "Well, that's not sophisticated enough," you know. And Tom's response was, "All they got to do is learn one route tree. Makes it easy. It does make it easy. Yeah. <laughs> and we were able to be successful. <laughs> so." That that that's that's his gift. The other thing is that he's absolutely unflappable. It doesn't matter what the score of the game is. It doesn't matter how many games you won or lost. It doesn't matter who's playing or who isn't playing. 
he never changes his style. He never changes his tone of voice. He never changes his approach. And no matter how great the pressure in the game, whether it's the Super Bowl or you're down 21 points in the championship game to New England, it doesn't matter. Um, he's always going to be the same guy. He is the living proof of do what we do. And he, he has any number of sayings which he shares with the players frequently, uh, which are unique, and most of which are not really applicable with a family audience. But Peyton <laughs> one year had, had a T-shirt made for all the offensive guys of Tom's 10 best sayings. And the one that, it, that, that is, um, that is uh, suitable for a family audience is stack the wounded and keep on marching. <laughs> football is a semi-militaristic game so yeah. it registers with football players for those of you that that think that uh, bellicosity isn't shouldn't carry the day then well you wouldn't you wouldn't handle football too well <laughs> and, it's not, and it certainly isn't uh sensitive but uh you know Somebody would go down. Let's say Marvin was down with a knee injury. Tom and Tom has a unique kind of croak in his voice, which I can't imitate. Many of the players can, and Benton does a does a good one. But you know, Tom would say somebody would go down, and and uh, and and a reporter or someone would say to him, "Well, you don't have Marvin for the next three weeks. What are you going to do?" Tom would say, "Stack the wounded and keep on marching." <laughs> Well, you know, Bill, he had to be doing something right because there are only two teams in NFL history that have had, in, in a single season, a 4,000-yard passer, a 1,500-yard rusher, and a 1,500-yard receiver, and those were the 1995 Detroit Lions and your 1999 Indianapolis Colts, both with Tom Moore as the offensive coordinator. Amazing that he did it once. Incredible that he did it twice. Yeah. Well, he's an amazing, incredible person and a wonderful guy to be around uh, and a, a font of wisdom uh, as well. But his unflappability is unique. He really, I mean, he, he, he would remind you of the caricature of the old time Western sheriff. You know, the guy that, uh, spoke softly and not a lot, but carried a big stick. That's Tom. <laughs> uh, at that point, did you see influences on on Tony? Uh, obviously, they're very different in terms of the language they use and so on. But uh, did you see influences where Tony was sort of picking up certain things from Tom or uh, things that were revealed to him that, that, you know, that he hadn't seen before? No, no. Tony was fully formed when he, when he came to us as a head coach and Tom was fully formed as an offensive coordinator. Um, but the thing that, 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 that made it work was that Tony had just the utmost trust in, in, in Tom, you know, he, he never second guessed Tom's play calls. He, he, that wasn't his style anyway, but but he never uh, interfered in any way. He had absolutely implicit trust in, in Tom's ability to both uh, 
construct the offense and then use it effectively in, in game preparation and on game day. He was, and Tony never had a worry in the world about what Tom would do on offense. And we had, uh, you know, tremendous people on our staff, Howard Mudd, our offensive line coach, he and Tom were like two peas in the same pod. Uh, Howard is a different personality. He's much more valuable than Tom, but, uh, uh, but, you know, he, he has no peer as an offensive line coach and Jim Caldwell for all of our time with Tony before he became the head coach was the quarterback coach. And previous to that, it had been Bruce Arians. And, and both of those guys are incredible coaches and, and, and Tom let them do their thing. Uh, Howard essentially constructed the run game and, and the things that we did offensively were so different at that time that um, they were revolutionary in many respects. Um, So those guys were so secure in their knowledge and in their ability to uh, uh, to connect with the players and teach the players and 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 convince the players that what they were going to do would work that that they were exceptionally uh, cohesive um, there you know it just was a well you know to use a hackneyed phrase a well-oiled machine it was because and, and largely because those three positions function so smoothly and so interchangeably. Now, there are some cases where they, you know, they might disagree on the way to block a certain play or uh, on a certain passing game concept, but they talk it out professionally. And the end product that the players got on Wednesday was something that they all completely trusted. And, um, and, and so as Peyton grew and, and had more input into the offense, the the joke every week was dial it back, dial it back, dial it back, keep it simple. Peyton wanted to wanted a lot more plays than eventually ended up in the game plan. <laughs> and it was Jim Caldwell who 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 shepherded that assignment. But uh, the bottom line was uh, the offense was unique. Um, the way we blocked was unique. We were a complete zone blocking team. Uh, it was a run oriented offense, as you just mentioned, uh, Rick. Uh, Peyton set all kinds of records, and and we, you know we had two Hall of Fame receivers and and a great tight end in Dallas Clark. Um, but the running game was 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 really what made us go, uh, and we featured the run, uh, the the outside stretch play was the basis of our run game and everything Peyton did in a play action game came from that, came off that. So uh, we were a balanced offense. We were not a, a just go wild and throw it 75 times a game offense. That wasn't us at all. Our, our run pass balance was, was right on where we wanted it to be unless we happened to get into a shootout, which will happen two or three times a year. Um, uh, so, it was sound. It was solid. It was exceedingly easy to learn. That's one of the reasons when Brandon Stokely went down, we were able to uh, we were able to draft Austin Collie and plug him in as a as a rookie as the slot receiver. 
when Anthony Gonzalez went down, we were able to replace him uh, because it was a relatively easy, uh, easy offense to learn. Now, we didn't have to replace Marvin and Reggie, thank God. But a lot of that is due to the fact that, uh, they, you know, we, we didn't overburden them. Um, Marvin, you had to, Marvin and Peyton, you had to drag off the field with, you know, with chains around them because they'd be out there for four hours if you let them. But, and, and Reggie was a great worker too, but uh, Tom made sure that, that they got the reps they needed. And then that was that, you know, get ready for says Howard used to play when he used to say every week in practice, we're not playing the Colts this week. <laughs> <laughs> Don't leave your game on, uh, on the practice field. So all of those things were unique. Many times the press derided them. Um, but Tony, it, with his equanimity, uh, was just simply able to shrug it off and keep moving. Well, it had to be significant because I mean I can't think of hardly any, if any, other examples of a of a coach playing in someone's offense or the embryonic stage of someone's offense when they were in college. I mean, this had to be a really unique kind of thing. And coach Dungy mentions this a lot in his book that, you know, playing for the Gophers and passing for 3,500 yards and throwing for 25 touchdowns under Tom Moore for three years had to provide him a really unique insight and sort of trust both in what coach Moore was doing, but then also maybe lent some idea philosophically in terms of, you know, what he would become in terms of a defensive mind. Oh yeah. Without question. Uh, he, uh, that, that's where the trust factor comes in. You know, it, it, it's, I've heard this phrase used, Frank Reich uses it, uh, from time to time, you know, Tom was, was taking nothing obviously away from Mr. Dungy, Wilbur Dungy, who Tony revered. Um, Mr. Dungy, when he was alive, by the way, was around a lot. He would come to every game and he, he'd come to training camp and he was a wonderful man, uh, even more quiet than Tony. By the way, uh, here's an example of how the Dungy family functions. Um, I think Tony's mother had passed away by the time he joined us. Um, but Mr. Dungy was around a lot. And, and he was soft-spoken, not a man of, of a lot of words. But when he spoke, you listened, obviously. But I didn't find out until I actually went to his funeral that he had been a Tuskegee Airman. He never mentioned it. I'm not sure Tony knew it, actually. I think in doing that, Tony knew he'd been in the service in World War II. I'm not sure he knew he was a Tuskegee Airman. Uh, and, and that, that was, I, mean, I, was, I was amazed by it, that, that no one, ha, you know, had ever mentioned that. But that's the Dungy family. That's the way they are. They're, they're, they're about deeds, not words. So Tom was really Tony's football father, if you will. He and Chuck Knoll are clearly the most the most uh, uh, significant uh, influences on his career. And, and Bill, he had a lot of respect for Bill Walsh, too. Well, I think we'd be remiss if we're going to touch on the Tuskegee Airmen for our D.C. fans. If I didn't put a plug in for Red Tails, very strong name. Maybe we go with it. I think it would be good. It would be a nice way to honor some very, very great Americans. So hopefully in all of this name change controversy, Red Tails, my my plug should be the winner. But we'll see what happens with that. 
Rick, are you in? Oh, hey, I, I'm in. You know, I, I I just don't know about the guy who's making the decision <laughs> where he's going to go because it should have happened a long time ago. But uh, Red Tail, strong name. I think we should do it. But moving back to Coach Dungy. So uh, Coach Dungy was a two-time uh, Big Ten all-academic uh, team member. Although he was considered a little undersized for the quarterback position at six foot, 188 pounds, he had hoped to be drafted as a quarterback in 1977. However, he went undrafted. And in doing the research for this, this is another sort of strange uh, moment of intersection, potentially, Bill, into your life that I knew nothing about and I think our fans will know nothing about. Coach Dungey in his book recounted a story that when he went undrafted, he was recruited by a lot of different teams and he was heavily recruited. Um, by Marv Levy with the Montreal Alouettes, who I think you know a little bit about this, um, to play for Marv in the uh, Canadian Football League. How much of a known quantity was Coach Dungy to you at that time as a quarterback, and how much did you sort of think he would fit well in Coach Levy's system, potentially in Canada? Well known because I had scouted him for the Alouettes, and, uh, and I was convinced that he would be a star in the league. Now that didn't take a lot of a, a, a lot of talent or, or ingenuity <laughs> to figure out, <laughs> because he was a dominant player uh, at, at the college level at Minnesota, and and was going to be too short really to play quarterback in those days in the NFL. Uh, there weren't there weren't very many short quarterbacks uh, in those days, and as a result. Uh, uh, you know, he, he did change positions in the NFL and was not drafted as a, as a quarterback. It obviously had nothing to do with his academic or intellectual capacities because he, he was a academic all-star. But, um, you know, people were looking for 6'3", 6'4", 6'5", quarterbacks in those days who stayed in the pocket. Uh, but Tony was perfect for the Canadian game and probably would have signed with Montreal. Uh, were it not for the presence of Tom Moore with the Pittsburgh Steelers. That was a deciding factor. So when you and Marv both wound up at the, at the uh, Kansas City Chiefs the next year, with the height issue, uh, Tony was not, I guess, really a consideration even for a backup position as quarterback in the NFL? Well, he, he was with the Steelers at the time uh, and, and so wasn't available. And uh, as I recall, and, and so we brought in Tom Clements, actually, who had many of the same skill sets and many and much the same personality. Uh, it just that he'd gone to Notre Dame, obviously, and, uh, and Tony, Minnesota. But Marv was convinced that we, we actually ran, a, a, for the first year in Kansas City, a, uh, a, what amounted to a hybrid version of the wing tee. And, and we were pretty successful with it, actually. People derided that as well. Marv eventually switched to a, a, a much more standard pro offense, and, and Tom didn't fit that, and uh, Tom Clements didn't fit that necessarily, and he went off to Canada where he won umpteen Grey Cups, and where in Winnipeg in uh, in 1983 um, we traded 11 players. I say we because I was the personnel director. We traded 11 players for the rights to Tom Clements. And he led us to the Great Cup. So football is a small world. Yes, it is. <laughs> it really is.
Um, in, in light of uh, what's been going on in the country while in the, in the weeks preceding our recording this uh, with, with George Floyd and uh, the demands for social justice, uh, in the past, we've talked about the Rooney Rule. Bill, of course, you were one of the leaders uh, with the, the number of, uh, of black coaches that you've hired over the years. Uh, but take us back to that point in time. Uh, was was being black absolutely because now it clearly is not a factor in the NFL with you know you look at the makeup but back then was there any feeling like well we need to have a, a white quarterback for the fans to still identify or uh, you know boy if we give that position away there's, there's not going to be any positions left for the white guys that was there any of that kind of prejudice or you know sort of uh, improper thinking in those days not that I ever heard I, I never heard that uttered at any time in my life certainly not in my life in football um, however, uh, it's clear the results are, are, are point out, the facts point out, that it was a pattern. Um, the, the Marlon Briscoe had been quite a successful college quarterback and, uh, and, and came with the Buffalo Bills long before I came there. Um, but they switched in to wide receiver. Um, now, some of it, I think, was because of the height issues, which, by the way, I think to some degree still exist today. It's a factor. You can't deny that. Um, but um, I, I never heard any overt prejudice or anybody denigrating uh, people, but it was just kind of accepted because there were so few black quarterbacks at the college level that um you know you were going to go with the standard operating procedure which was a 6364 roman gabriel's big strong uh throw it down the field arm dan fouts people of that nature so the, the guys that were playing qual uh, quarterback with the exception of shack at uh, at grambling uh who did come to the buffalo bills and and, and play quarterback uh, and, and had a career, a long career as a as a as, as a starter and sometimes starter and backup in the league. He played for the James Harris. His nickname is Shaq. Um, he started for the Los Angeles Rams for a period of time. Uh, he was more the prototypical quarterback. Um, but I, you know, I can't deny the facts. There's no denying that. I never saw or heard any overt prejudice, but you you can't you can't deny the fact that black quarterbacks were were not being hired in the National Football League. Period. That's all there is to it. And and as Joe Friday and Dragnet used to say, just the facts, man. And the same was true with coaches. There were no uh, black coaches being hired, and uh, and Tony, uh, once he became a defensive coordinator and became uh, certainly qualified and, and, and eligible to be part of the pool of people that were considered for head coaching jobs, couldn't get one, even though his pedigree was, was outstanding. And, uh, 
And he talked with Commissioner Tagliabue about that. And Commissioner Tagliabue um, decided that the time had come to take some affirmative action with respect to trying to get black head coaches uh, hired in the National Football League. Um, Tony famously in his uh, Hall of Fame acceptance speech mentioned the 10, I believe it was 10 black assistant coaches who had preceded him in the league. Uh, Now that's amazing when even at that time, the league was probably over 50%, certainly African-American players. There were only 10 African-American assistant coaches and they were the pioneers, the forerunners. Um, And and Tony was the first African-American head coach. But his his ascension had been stymied, uh, and and he went to Commissioner Tagliabue and and talked about it. And Commissioner Tagliabue felt it was time to do it. Uh, Commissioner Tagliabue's background was such that he had grown up in Jersey City, New Jersey, and and because he was a basketball player, a, a you know high level elite basketball player at the college level, competed in the summers against uh, black players, some of whom never had a chance to, to go to the NBA or, 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 or play at major colleges uh, simply because there was prejudicial practices in those days. Uh, so, and, and he grew up rooting for the Brooklyn Dodgers and Jackie Robinson. So his, his approach to things was progressive because of his own background as an elite athlete and growing up in an urban environment in Jersey City, New Jersey. So he felt the time had come to do something. And, uh, and so he went to Dan Rooney, uh, the owner of the Pittsburgh Steelers, who was among the two or three most respected owners in all of sports and certainly in the National Football League. When Dan Rooney got up to speak at a league meeting, The room went silent. Everybody listened, and nine times out of ten, what he was espousing carried the day. So Paul, knowing that it was – if the commissioner mandated this, it it wouldn't go anywhere, asked Dan to put his name on the ruling rule. Together they crafted it, uh, put it forward, and created in conjunction with the ruling rule a diversity committee – which was co-chaired by Dan Rooney and Arthur Blank of the Atlanta Falcons. And Rich McKay and Ozzie Newsom and, and myself were among the first members of it. And uh, we helped to craft the policies that have become known as the Rooney Rule, uh, which passed. The owners have to pass every rule that's, that's put forth in the National Football League. You have to have a three-quarters majority. And um, and it passed, and and of course, um, Tony uh, was subsequently hired by the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Uh, ironically enough, where Rich McKay had become the general manager, um, and became the first black head coach, I think since Fritz Pollard. I could be wrong on that, but I think yeah. that's correct. Mm-hmm. And, um, and and then of course he was followed by Lovey Smith and 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 a couple of others. And the, and the irony is that, and, and what makes it so spectacular historically, regarding, regardless of the outcome of the game, is that um, I guess it's Super Bowl 41, 
featured uh, the first time two black coaches squared off against each other in the in the NFL's premier game. Uh, but you know, Bill, uh, and again, we've touched on this a, a bit in the past episode, but I think uh, it's certainly worth uh, dwelling on. Uh, you, you're right. I remember uh, that in the mid '80s, the league uh, was already 52 percent. Uh, comprised of black players. By the time the Rooney Rule came around, it was over 60% black players. Uh, and while people like you uh, had helped institute a change in, in hiring black assistants and black head coaches, uh, you know, we still find ourselves now in a 32 team league uh, that's now in a league that's over 70% African American with uh, two. Uh, African-American head coaches and one Hispanic head coach. I mean, it just doesn't seem like we've made that much progress. Well, I think we made progress at the outset of the Rooney rule and, and, and then, then we, we backslid and in, you know, uh, it's often said that James Michener wrote that sports is a microcosm of America. And, and he's, and he's quite correct. Uh, from the progressivism of the, of the time of the Rooney rule, um, to now, despite the election of President Obama, we've, we've gone backwards in, in terms of race relations, which is one of the reasons we're seeing all of the, 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 the demonstrations that we've, we've seen over the past month. Um, and that's and, and just a fact. Um, the, it's, it's, I think we need to explain what the Rooney Rule actually is. The Rooney Rule in its, in its first incarnation basically said that if you have an opening for a head coach, you must, as part of the interview process, interview a minority candidate. Uh, over time, that's, it's been modified to some degree and extended to the general manager position. And now, because we have backslid, uh, the owners this past February uh, passed a, a revision of the Rooney Rule, which now says that you must interview two minority candidates for every major supervisory opening, which would mean head coach, offensive and defensive coordinator, general manager, personnel director, and that one of those candidates must be from outside your building. Uh, so I, I must admit that I think there's been some subterfuge used, some uh, many uh, African-American coaches say that there have been token interviews. Yeah. Um, I never conducted one, but but there have been, I think. Uh, and clearly that's their perception, so that's the important thing. Uh, but this revision of the Rooney Rule will eliminate that. And, and Tony's original... Uh, point of view regarding the Rooney Rule um, is, I think, the best one I've heard. We were, interestingly enough, on, a, on another podcast with Michael Barrow, who played for us in Indianapolis uh, this past Friday. Monty Williams, the coach of the Phoenix Suns, was on there. Uh, Pat Williams, the former president of the Orlando Magic. Um, I can't remember who else was, was on there at the moment, but um, we were talking about that very issue and, uh, and, and Tony made the point 
that he's always made, that owners have to get to know uh, coaching candidates as people before they'll feel comfortable hiring them. And as a result, you need to get minority coaches more exposure to the owners. That's the, that's the first part of the process. And so expanding the minority interviews to two for each supervisory position is going to give um, owners and, and decision makers, general managers, if you will, or team presidents who are far removed from, from the, with the exception of Rich McKay or, or John Mara, are far removed from who the good coaches are um, and, and qualified coaches are. It'll give them an opportunity to see more people. And Tony never believed that even though it looked as though someone else was going to get the job, a token interview um, was not valuable, even if it, even if it didn't, if the, if the candidate was a long shot, because what it did was give him exposure both to the interviewing process and to ownership of, of the particular club with whom he was interviewing. So, um, all of that is part and parcel of, of, of the reasons behind the new uh, version of the Rooney Rule. And, and we, the good news is that the pipeline is full. We have people like Marvin Lewis and Jim Caldwell who've taken teams to the playoffs and the Super Bowl. Um, the defensive coordinator in Tampa Bay um, who did a bang up job as the head coach of the Jets in, 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 a, in a situation where he had a very little talent and, and really wasn't on the same page with the GM. Um, there, are, there are Todd Bowles is the person uh, to whom I'm referring. Um, there are plenty of candidates in the pipeline. That's, that's, there's, there's no, that's another reason why we should not, you know, for one minute, uh, not have some uh, minority hires next time around. I mean, if we don't, something's seriously wrong because these men are tremendously qualified. And, you know, you just look at the job Brian Flores has done in Miami. It hasn't shown in the record yet, but if you know football and you watch his teams play, uh, you, you can tell he knows what he's doing. He, of course, comes from New England, um, and now he's going to have Tua at quarterback, and, and he'll rebuild the defense. Uh, another example of, of a guy who was eminently qualified um, for the job, and, and, and I'm sure will do a good job. With the new processes, I'm confident, will, will help bring that to, a, you know, help, help grow those, those numbers, and, and they should. But the fact yeah. that Marvin Lewis and Herman Edwards, who, who, just, who just resuscitated the Arizona State program, and, and, and Jim Caldwell, who, who took the Colts to the Super Bowl and rebuilt the Detroit Lions and took them to a playoff game for the first time in the memory of man, uh, you know, don't have jobs is, is, is a disgrace. Very true. No, it absolutely is.
Well, as we alluded to earlier, um, Co- no one wanted Coach Dungy to play quarterback in the NFL, even though you guys wanted him very badly to play for you guys in Canada. He was recruited by Tom Moore to play for the Steelers and to actually play wide receiver for Chuck Knoll in Pittsburgh. Um, you know, so Coach Dungy eventually would pick the Steelers over playing quarterback in Canada uh, at some level, much to his chagrin. Could you give us a little bit of your take on Coach Knoll? Uh, yes. Um, now, most of what, what I know of Coach Knoll uh, firsthand is limited, um, but I've read a lot about him. Uh, I asked Paul Brown, who, thank God, became a friend and a mentor during my early days as a GM, about him. And he played for Paul with the Cleveland Browns. Um, I had a close friend who since passed away, who was a University of Dayton alumnus, and my other closest friend in the world is a, a UD uh, alum. And so they knew a lot about Chuck uh, because he's from Dayton. And uh, and then, of course, I've heard a great deal from Tony about him and from Tom Moore. Um, the Chuck's nickname as a player was the Pope. Uh, not because he was a devout Catholic, although he was, but because he was infallible. He was never wrong. (laughs) He knew every assignment. Uh, Mike McCormick, for whom I worked with the Carolina Panthers, was a teammate of his with the Cleveland Browns. They were both offensive linemen. Chuck was an offensive guard. He was one of the messenger guards. As a matter of fact, Paul Brown, in those days, called uh, plays by sending in guards with the play they would relay it to Otto Graham Otto Graham would call it um and and so Chuck was one of the messenger guards and his nickname was the Pope Mike told me that his nickname was the Pope because he he was never wrong uh he was you know very very intelligent um very very matter of fact um and because of his countenance, you know, he was a big man, as most offensive linemen are, not in the not in the sense of fat or obese, but big, wide, big hands, big shoulders, big feet. When you stand next to a retired offensive lineman nowadays, when they take all the all the excess weight off, what you see are people with gigantic hands and gigantic feet. Really, they're, I mean, they're they're a breed apart. So Chuck had that 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 bigness about him, um, and he had also uh, worked for Don Shula in Baltimore, and um, he had been the op- the defensive coordinator in San Diego as well. But uh, think about Chuck Nolan, Don Shula on the same staff, huh? Yeah, it's <laughs> pretty good staff. Uh, as a matter of fact. Chuck left the the the, Balt, the Colts staff to to join the Steelers. I think that was his. I think that's how the the progression went. In any event, uh, he was unlike Coach Shula in the sense that he wasn't, you know, he wasn't bombastic. He was very much matter of fact, um, and very for for a young person who only knew him as a. Um, as a, uh, a television personality, if you will, as a presence, 
he was intimidating. Uh, he had been on the NFL competition committee long before I was, and uh, but had had transitioned off. And uh, and we had an, an issue one year about uh, something that had to do with the kicking game. Uh, it had to do with the number of people who could release downfield before the ball was kicked. And none of us really knew why the rule was there. And there was a debate about whether or not it ought to be changed. And so we couldn't figure out why it was in the book. And so Jim Finks, who was then the chairman of the committee, and I was a, you know, how they have in the, in the Senate or in the House, rather, the ranking member. I, I was the lowest ranking member. <laughs> right. You, you, you were the back, the backbencher in Parliament. That's exactly right. I was so far back on the bench, you couldn't find me in most meetings. <laughs> so um, Jim said, why don't you go ask Chuck Knoll uh, why this is in there and what his suggestion would be? We we're at the annual meeting, which is held in March. So before the general meeting began the following day, I walked over to Coach Knoll and introduced myself. And he had these steely blue eyes. He had, you know, you've heard people um, describe steely blue eyes. <laughs> They're intimidating. <laughs> Especially surrounded by that body. <laughs> so I introduced myself and he said in a very sort of monotone, I know who you are. <laughs> well, that really makes me feel warm and fuzzy. <laughs> so I said, Coach, uh, we're hung up on whether or not to modify this rule in, in the punting game. And so we can't figure out what, you know, what was trying to be accomplished with this. And Jim Fink said you would know. So could you please give me an explanation? And he, he said, you really want to know? And I said, yes, sir, I do. Yeah, we won't make any decision until we hear from you. I mean, you, we don't have, I certainly don't have the expertise to, to, to know this. And he said, his countenance changed immediately. He said, oh, okay, sit down. Took out a yellow legal pad, diagrammed it for me, told me why it was there, told me what the advantages were, told me what the, what the disadvantages were and told me how people were trying to skirt around it uh, as, as the game was progressing. So I said, is it your feeling that we ought to leave it the way it is? He said, yeah, leave it the way it is. It's good. So I said, coach, thank you very much. Uh, I, I'm sorry to intrude. And he kind of put his hand on my, my shoulder and said, don't you weren't intruding. That was, that was a great question. Okay. Off I went. So I saw a different guy and I, I, I reiterated the story to Tony and Tom and, and they said, yeah, you saw on the one hand, you saw uh, the, the, the head coach executive, you know, uh, the, the, the Myron Cope, who was the longtime voice of the Pittsburgh Steelers, right. who was unique. Right. He invented the terrible towel, among other things, the yellow towels that they still wave to this day, uh, nicknamed, Coach Noel, the Emperor Chaz. Well, <laughs> like most nicknames, there was there was a degree of, of truth to it because he did have that reserve about him that all, you know, great leaders seem to have. But then 
as Tony said, he was the greatest teacher he ever encountered. And when you saw the teaching side of him, um, it, it, it was really, it, it was a, a different, uh, a different person almost entirely. Um, in addition to which, um, there, there used to be, it doesn't take place as much anymore, but there used to be heated debate at the league meetings about rules and, and how they affected individual teams. Um, that used to be done in the big plenary session where owners and, and others, non-football people were in the room. Anymore, it's done in a special briefing that's given to the head coaches by the competition committee the night before they introduce the competition committee report. That's still hectic and, and it's still difficult. And you don't get assigned to do that briefing very often. Once is about enough. I think I did two in my 20 years on the committee. <laughs> That's probably good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but in the, in, in the days before that, uh, the debates really, you know, would get heated. And, and so Sam Weish uh, was running the sugar huddle in Cincinnati in those days. And, of course, the Bengals were in the same division as were the Steelers. And, um, and, and it was a problem because they would not let you substitute on defense. They would uh, run uh, 13 guys off the sideline uh, you'd have a hard time identifying who the personnel was in the game. Uh, you try to substitute, and as soon as you try to substitute, they run two guys off and snap the ball, boom. So they were getting people really confused. And it was clearly against the rules, at least certainly the spirit of the rules. But you needed to, to make sure that you crafted a rule that was going to be equitable for everybody because it is, you know, the no huddle is a, is a great weapon. You don't want to take that away. So uh, Sam Weiss was both innovative and charismatic and a, a tremendous, tremendous talker. Great, I mean that in a, in a, in a laudable sense. I and mean, he was a great salesman. And, and I can see why his teams did as well as they did. And, uh, and so he, he got up when this rule was proposed, which ultimately passed, which was that you know, you couldn't have more than 11 people in the huddle. And if a substitute came in, he couldn't enter the huddle until the, the, uh, the, 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 the person he was replacing left. And if, if the uh, offense substituted the defense, the umpire would stand over the ball and stop play until the offense had a, had a chance to match up. Sam obviously was opposed to it. And so, in, in presenting the rule, I was not on the committee at the time, but in presenting the rule to competition, but he said, look, this is against what's being done is against the spirit of the rules. And we need to change that to make a level playing field. And uh, Sam stood up and made this impassioned plea about how it wasn't against the rules and they weren't trying to fool anybody. And, uh, and it, it was just an attempt to make sure that they got the maximum out of their substitution time and, he, he made every argument under the sun, and he said, we don't do it. We don't violate the spirit of the rules. And he sat down, and, and Chuck stood up and said, Sam, yes, you do, and sat down. <laughs> 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 so, 
you know, that, that's the picture yeah. I had of Chuck Noel uh, before <laughs> I, I joined forces with Tony, who explained to me and would explain to the players many, many times what Coach Noel's philosophy was. And he started every year and would refer to it often, uh, oftentimes during the season with Chuck Knowles' uh, uh, admonition uh, every year to the team at the start of training camp that football is not your life's work. It's a, it's a way station on your way to your life's work. And so it's a short career. Make the most of it. Uh, do what you can to develop yourself and be the best player you can be, but understand that you're going on to something else. And that, of course, is a direct outgrowth of what Paul Brown often said to his teams. I'm sure Chuck got it from Paul Brown. In any event, Tony would often uh, uh, quote that. In addition, uh, Chuck according to Tony. And then, of course, we uh, absolutely um, uh, abided by it, uh, was that our mantra was um, do the ordinary things in an extraordinary way. And, uh, and so we heard that all the time, all the time, all the time, all the time from Tony. Um, and and then that morphed into do what we do, but that was a direct offshoot of uh, of what Coach Noel uh, preached to Tony. And interestingly enough, uh, when things go poorly, when you hit a bump in the road, when there's when there's strife, do less, not more. And uh, and so amazingly, uh, those three things were also the tenants of uh, the, the founding tenants, the pillars, if you will, of Marv Levy's football philosophy. And, uh, and as a result, um, Tony and I were, you know, the match made in heaven. Our football philosophies were completely aligned. And I asked Tony early on in our time together, did you ever run across Coach Levy? And he said, no, not really. Uh, I said, because you're identical. What, what you guys preach is identical. And he said, well, you know, that was, that's Chuck. And with some Bill Walsh in terms of practice planning and that, uh, and that uh, tucked in. And, 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 and most of that, the Bill Walsh stuff, because Bill did work for Marv when he was, both were college coaches. There's a lot of, there's a lot of Marv's philosophy in Bill. So, some of that rubbed off on Tony, but when when you talk about two people directly aligned philosophically, that was us, and uh, and and so the uh, even down to the defense, Tampa too. We're going to get there in a in a while, but that was originally crafted in in Pittsburgh and uh, by Bud Carpenter, and and that's an offshoot of the split and gap six, which is a which is the first defense I learned as a as a small college player and later used as a as a as a college coach. So, and even the defensive philosophy was similar. Uh, you know, is it a match made in heaven? I kiss him at who knows, but uh, right. but 
the, the, the philosophical approach uh, and, the, and, and Tony's matter of fact approach is also, it's his personality, but it's also, I'm sure, influenced very much by Chuck Noll. You know, Bill, um, I think it's interesting because we're not only talking about philosophies here, but we're talking about influences. And with you and Tony being so well-matched, it reminds me of something I've heard you say as a GM, as a club president, uh, when we were in the AAF, uh, which I think you attributed to the Paterno brothers, which is take care of the small things and the big things will take care of themselves. Yeah, that's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. That's Joe and George Paterno. And, and that's one of the, one of their mantras, uh, uh, it probably that's uh, one of the, you know, if you woke me up at two o'clock in the morning, that's probably one of the things I recite right away. Uh, it, it's ingrained and, and it's true. And, and, uh, and again, you know, I think there, there are common threads among everything that, that, um, that people do in this business and that, that succeeds in this business. And, and so, uh, that's that's one of them. Yeah, and, and uh, you know when you probe those things, uh, what I find interesting is uh, that they sound simple, but they really have a lot of underlying depth and resonance when you realize you know what's being imparted, the wisdom. Well, here's a here's a Levyism that uh, Marvism, as as the players call them, uh, that that directly correlates to that what it takes to win is simple but it isn't easy you're right so in terms of i know we talked a lot just now about uh doing the small things coach dungy did a big thing in his time with the steelers as he transitioned from wide receiver uh to safety um how hard is it for a collegiate athlete and a collegiate player at that level to one switch positions from quarterback to wide receiver but then to go to safety and how hard is that to do in the NFL um the conversion from wide receiver to safety if you're tough enough physically um is probably about the easiest one you could make because uh you're looking at you're just flipping the mirror if you will they're mirror images of one another uh, because you're seeing the game from the back uh, or focusing on the back as the case may be. Um, and so it's a relatively easy transition to make. Having said that, transitioning positions for any professional athlete is really hard because by the time you reach the, the professional level, you are already a fully formed athlete. Keep in mind that athletes peak at age 28. So if you presume that a player is coming in at 21 or 22, uh, they're, they're, they already played more than half their athletic life. So uh, the, the habits, the, uh, the instincts, if you will, the muscle memory, uh, is all fully formed. So it's hard to do. You have to be, you have to have really good football instincts and football knowledge. You have to have a wide range of, of knowledge of the game and understand what's going on. Many players understand only their position and, and, and nothing else around them. 
and, and they still are good players. Um, but in order to switch positions, you really have to have a, a wider lens uh, through which you view the game. And um, so it, it's, it's just hard to do. But to transition from receiver to safety is probably the easiest one, provided you have that wider lens through which you view the game. So, Bill, let me let me postulate something and tell me if there's any sense in this at all. It's sort of following up that as a given, you've got a guy like Tony who, you know, obviously being a quarterback and being Tony had a really vast, broad knowledge of uh, how, how it goes. It, if you move a guy from quarterback to his mirror image at safety, uh, is it possible that he actually brings with him some built-in advantages folks who have never only played uh, safety in their careers wouldn't have in terms of being able to read certain tells the way a quarterback does something or observe other movement where he might get tips or be able to anticipate things because he's so familiar why somebody on the other side of the ball is doing that, that it would actually be to his advantage. Yeah, that's right. That's the wider lens. Uh, you know, you can, as a safety, you, you could look at an offensive lineman on tape, for example, or even in a game and get a tell uh, as to what the play may be, run or pass, simply by the way he sets up in his stance. By the way, professional players are creatures of a habit, and so uh, once you study them, you, they all have their own their own idiosyncrasies, uh, which they fight to keep under control, so that that you can't read anything. Uh, mm-hmm. But yes, as a as a safety who played quarterback, surely you would know that. You could tell voice inflection of the quarterback, body language of the quarterback. You would know. Right. Which which is is would be hard for someone who hasn't played the position to know. Placement of the hands is the guy are that guy's hands all the way under, or are they are they slightly removed from the center? Um, things like little things like that make a difference in games, and and the answer is yes. A guy who's played quarterback would have a better, much wider lens, if you will, than than would someone who hasn't. Yeah, you know, that's uh, what I was anticipating. And I, and I would think also with somebody who has Tony's intellect, that would be even increased in a manifold way. Yeah, it, yes. The answer is yes. But, but Tony's Tony's gift, which and, and Marv's, too, which was absolutely almost magical, was that he could process something. And when speaking to the team or teaching an individual player, reduce it to its smallest essential details and coach the player in that way. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that was, with both of them, it was amazing. And, and that's a gift. I mean, that, that, now you have to have the intellectual power to process what you yourself are learning and then to pass it along to the uh, to the player, and I don't doubt that um, that because Tony's mother and father were educators that they yeah. passed along that gene. But it, it's an amazing, amazing talent that he has. Uh, you know, it's uh, as a lawyer, one of the things you learn in law school is. 
if you if you're a good student and a good lawyer is how to distill a problem to its essence, right? Because in any case, there's all kinds of questions. But is the question jurisdiction? You know, is is the question an interpretation of the way? That, but if you don't understand what the bottom line is when you distill it down, and when I hear people like Tony, that's exactly what they seem to be able to do to separate everything else and get to the essential element of what's going on. Yeah, that's part of that's part of of analyzing the problem. The other part of it is 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 making others understand how you deal with that problem. And and that's the gift that I'm that I'm talking about. That's yeah. he's exceptional and as was Marv in that in that way. Well Coach Dungey would have a successful uh, tenure with the Steelers. In fact, in 1978, he would lead the Steelers in interception during their Super Bowl championship season, where they would actually win the Super Bowl in Miami, foreshadowing for things to come. Um, it was also during this time with the Steelers where the Ste- that those Steeler teams, I know we kind of referenced this earlier with Pope Noel in a different way, but Coach Dungy has referenced those Steeler teams being teams of great faith and having a lot of guys in their locker room um, who were very much led by faith. And Coach Dungy actually had a battle with Mono uh, after the 78 season where he would worry about making the team. And during this battle, his his faith grew tremendously. And I think it would be – I think we'd be remiss in sort of looking at Coach Dungy's life if we didn't kind of mention faith and what role faith has played in Coach Dungy's life. But I think in a curious sense, what kind of impact does that have, if any, in a locker room sense when you have players or leadership that are are so devout in their faith? Well, um, let me speak to Tony first. Um, Tony, as I I talked about his dad – he and his dad, I suspect a lot alike, in that they were men of few words and and a lot of deeds. Tony lives his faith. Um, if there's time to proselytize, a time and a place to proselytize, which in the off season he would do virtually every Sunday, he'd preach at at, at a church uh, around Indianapolis every Sunday, and I suspect he may still be doing it now. Um, uh, he was great at it. Um, he didn't often do it in front of the team, except in times of um, crises where someone might have a personal crisis. Uh, but his mantra, which uh, we never deviated, was that that the you know this is not your life's work number one. And number two, your priorities ought to be faith, family, football. And he lived that. He lived that. And uh, as a result, um, because he lived such an upright life himself, and because he uh, dedicated so much time to charities, including uh, a charity he founded called All Pro Dads, which was designed to help um, young fathers, particularly who had come from a family where there was no male role model for them, uh, learn parenting skills and learn how to be dads. That was all 100% faith-based. Um, 
his actions spoke. He didn't need to speak the words because his actions spoke so much louder than his words. An old Levy Marvism, you know, what what you do speak so loudly, I can't hear what you say. So hmm. uh, the the bottom line is that he lived his faith. He didn't hide it under a bushel basket. I mean, he went to chapel every week, but he didn't require it uh, of those that didn't want to go. Um, he was uh, extremely uh, open and inclusive about those of other faiths. If they wanted to have their own chapel service, for example, we had Catholic mass every week. Uh, we had a Catholic and Protestant uh, chaplain, uh, one from each faith. Uh, and, and they did they did a lot of counseling with the players, much more so than people know. Um, and again, that wasn't uh, something that we publicized. Tony's essentially a private person anyway, uh, but um, he, he wasn't he wasn't into publicizing things unless uh, a someone asked or b he felt there was a, a, a real need to do it. Um, he did not cuss. And he discouraged uh, people from doing it, uh, although it was it was not uncommon to hear cuss words on our on our field. Um, but he was so respected by the players and other coaches that if somebody had an eruption, uh, jokingly someone might say, "Hey, man, don't don't offend Tony. Dial it down." And, and and the answer would be, yeah, yeah. Okay. I get it. Um, so, but, but he did have a stern moral code that he followed and, and there was right and there was wrong. And he was always going to strive to do right. Um, he did. And, and people frequently use this now. I don't know if he was the one who, who, uh, who coined this phrase, but he, he talked every now and then about the hard right versus the easy wrong. You know, it's hard to be, it's hard to do the right thing. Yeah. Um, it's easy to do the wrong thing. Um, and he would always, he, he would always uh, impart that wisdom, but in a, in a, in a, a non-proselytizing way. So his example and the way he treated people and the way he carried himself and, and what he demanded of the players in terms of their, of the way they did things uh, and carried themselves spoke volumes about what Tony Dungy was. He didn't have to say a lot because what he was spoke very, very loudly. You know, I, I think that's a good point to uh, talk about the very beginning of Tony's coaching career. So in, in, in uh, 1980, his playing career ended, and he was immediately hired by Chuck Noll at the Steelers uh, as a defensive backs coach. And he was only 25 at the time and by far the youngest uh, assistant coach in the league. Um, and I assume, Bill, aside from... Uh, technical skill and that ability to process and articulate it. 
uh, sort of the quiet leadership, uh, the respect and so on must have had a big role to play in trusting such a young man with such a big job. Well, there's no question about it. Chuck Noll knew that Tony was an exceptional individual. And you don't need to spend much time around him to recognize that. Um, but Chuck did. And Tony spoke about it on this uh, show that I mentioned to you that we, we were on the other day. Uh, first time I'd heard him talk about it at length. Um, he was cut by the 49ers and his playing career was coming to an end. And Chuck called him and offered him a job on the coaching staff, coaching uh, defensive backs. And so Tony went in to talk to Chuck and he said, you know, what do you expect of me, Chuck? What do you, what do you want me to do? And Chuck's response to him was, Tony, your job is to make the players better. Make them be the best they can be. That's your job. That's all I want from you. And, uh, and so Tony said, from that day on, I got it. And that was, my, that was my mantra as the coach, make the players better. And there's a follow-on to that. There is now an accepted wisdom in the National Football League that if you want to be a good professional coach, it doesn't matter where you came from, whether you played or you didn't play, um, how much you know about the game doesn't really count unless it can translate to helping the player be a better player, they will not respect you and will not respond to you. If they can, if they know that your desire and your capacity is to make them the best player they can be, they will welcome you with open arms. Now there'll be, everybody's idiosyncrasies are fair game in the national football. <laughs> Anyone who's played sports is, has known. I mean, there's, there's plenty of, uh, uh, of fooling around and, 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 you know, nicknames and things of that nature, but they will no doubt, without a doubt, accept you if your goal is to make that player a better player, the best player he can be. And, and that, also includes his off-field life, which, which Tony often, as I, I mentioned, often talked about, and how you treat the player. Uh, is he a name or a number, or is he a, is he a person? Um, those two things uh, are, are the hallmark of what Chuck Noll asked Tony to do and which he adapted to and, and, and took to be his and brought to a, to a brand-new level. Um, an example that comes to mind, uh, first year, uh, we're back at the facility, but we haven't begun the season yet, I don't believe. So things are really dragging. You know how it is in, at the end of training camp. Everybody's tired of it. They're getting ready. You know, they want to get going. They want a game plan, et cetera. And so a fight breaks out. And, uh, and so a bunch of coaches and myself and people – get in there and break it up and and you know there's still hard feelings and a lot of yelling and hooting going on and and tony stepped in and he said everybody up so he brings the whole squad up and tony doesn't speak as loudly as i'm speaking now i mean he's a soft-spoken individual as you know and he said um i want to tell you something that i learned from chuck Knoll, who was my coach uh, he said, I don't like fighting for three reasons. Number one, it incurs a 15-yard penalty. 
and that hurts our team. Number two, uh, you can get injured in so doing, and and that hurts our team. And number three, you can be ejected, and that hurts our team even more. So I'm not going to break up fights, and I'm not going to tell you that you can't fight. But we're not going to have the coaches breaking them up. We're not going to have Bill breaking them up, the scouts break nobody. You can fight if you want. But keep in mind that I control who plays. And if you want to fight, that's fine. But you'll be standing behind me on the sideline. Everybody good? Yes, sir. Probably pretty good. We never had another fight for all the time that Tony was coaching and Jim was coaching. Actually, we never had another fight the whole time we were there. So uh, Coach Dungy would spend four years as the defensive coordinator in Pittsburgh, but then after a difficult 5-11 and season in 1988, uh, Coach Dungy would actually leave the Steelers. Uh, Coach Knoll had wanted him to stay on in the defensive backs role, but Coach Dungy thought it would be a better opportunity to move on elsewhere. And he actually went to Kansas City, uh, another moment of kismet, a place you had been from 89 to 91 under head coach Marty Schottenheimer and defensive coordinator Bill Cower. So at at this point, Tony is getting an amazing sort of knowledge base, especially for someone who played quarterback in uh, college under Tom Moore. He's getting this insane knowledge base under, you know, Chuck Knoll, Marty Schottenheimer, Bill Cowher. What were kind of some of the big things that he took away from those defenses? Because those guys were running what classically is like the Blitzburg 3-4, weren't they? Uh, well, it wasn't exactly Blitzburg. No, Marty, Marty was much more of a... Uh of a solid uh, power three, four, if you will. Um, they didn't, they didn't blitz as much as Pittsburgh did, but, but it was without question a three, four, which Marty had learned from Bill Arnsparger, who was a, a great defensive coordinator of the giants. Um, so I'm sure Tony uh, took away a lot of uh, things that in terms of, learning how to attack protections, uh, coverages, which, which Marty was great at, and, and certainly organization, which Marty was an absolute master at, how to organize your team, how to approach them, how to, how to handle the week, all of those kinds of things. Um, I, I think, he, I think he, he, he really you know, got a lot of that part of it from Marty. But then when he went to Minnesota with Danny Green, uh, he was able to uh, put in the forefront, the forerunner of, of, of Tampa 2. Uh, it, it, it was really the first incarnation of it, and it's a direct offshoot of what they used in Pittsburgh with the steel curtain, uh, which, which Bud Carson uh, originated. So uh, there, there weren't a lot of three, four principles in, in our in our defense uh and tony's defense but i'm certain uh you know he learned a great deal in terms of organization and and how to run the program as a head coach from from marty so so bill so our listeners can really understand it you know we, we've heard announcers on games talk about the tampa two and so on. can you lay out for us uh what the tampa two defense uh, really is uh, and how it's different from 
uh, other uh, kinds of offenses that are common in the league? Yeah, it's markedly different uh, in, in many ways from the standard Parcells, Belichick 3-4, if you will, or the Marty Schottenheimer 3-4, or even the power uh, 4-3, the George Allen approach, uh, which has come down through the years uh, in in forefront defenses. Uh, Number one, it's a zone-based defense. You basically have three coverages. Cover one, which is man-to-man, cover uh, single high safety, cover three, which is zone, uh, single high safety, and and cover two, which is uh, two safeties back. And you can play that either zone or man. You, you have two two man or two zone uh, that you can play. That That's really about it. Uh, there's, there's some uh, different offshoots uh, that, that you play from week to week that change it, but it's too technical to go into now. The basic philosophy of the defense is that we're going to rush the quarterback with four, and we're going to play the run game with seven so that we're going to make you in the run game really change direction before you hit the hole And in the pass game, we're going to make you make the hardest throw if you want to get big chunk yardage. And what frustrates, uh, especially media people who don't understand the concept of the defense, is that when we're in cover two on early downs, we'll give up a four or five yard out. Give it up. No, we won't get there in time. We'll make the tackle, but we're we're not going to get up there and choke the receiver, and we're not going to take away every route. Uh, <laughs> all of those kinds of things we don't do. Uh, the the whole object is to rush four and drop seven. So you need to have four rushers who can get. They have to be bona fide rushers. They have to be able to get the quarterback. And then the seven droppers have to be exact in getting to their their landmarks, the places to which they're supposed to go on any given play against any given set. And then they read the quarterback. And when the quarterback takes his hand off the ball, so-called long-arm action, to deliver the ball, they fly to where the quarterback is. And we try to get 11 hats on the ball on every play. And and the theory is we want you to go the long way. We want you to have 20 play drives, which will often culminate in a field goal or often culminate in a turnover or a mistake. Mm-hmm. And so the teaching point is trust your teammates to get to where they're supposed to go, which means gap control and and where you're supposed to drop. Do your job, don't do somebody else's, do only your job, which means entering the play on the correct side of the ball carrier or the passer or the receiver. There's a correct side on on which to enter so that we funnel everything to a specified place on the field. 
uh, where we can get 11 hats on the ball and then play relentlessly 11 hats on the ball on every play. Make them go the long way. Make sure you're right in your technique all the time. Trust your technique. Um, this is not politically correct, but shoot your gun. When the quarterback goes long arm action, shoot your gun. Go to the ball. <laughs> uh, finally, uh, 11 hats on the ball. We opened practice, defensive practice, every day in training camp with pursuit drill. So they would go right from stretching at 9 o'clock in the morning to pursuit drill, where they were going from sideline to sideline, 11 guys. 11 guys had to tag the ball carrier before the drill was over. I, I, I used to say to Tony, Tony, can't we move it to the middle of practice? And no, 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 because you could pull hamstrings you know, early in the morning. And, but it, it, was, it was designed to inculcate the basic premise of the defense is that we're going to make you go the long way. We're going to be absolutely accurate in how we enter the play. Uh, we're going to be great tacklers, and we are going to pursue relentlessly. And that's all. That's the whole theory of the defense. In, in terms of the kind of personnel you need to make that successful, in terms of size versus speed versus uh, sort, of, sort of football IQ, what, what, what are the primary attributes that somebody has to have to succeed in that defense? Well, uh, it, rather than give you the short answer, I'll, I'll give you this anecdote, which is I love to this day. Um, we, we, I think it might have been our first draft together in in in, uh, in, in Indianapolis. Tony and I are on the treadmill side by side uh, two days before the draft, and we've got everything narrowed down. And there's going to be a choice between uh, Dwight Freeney and and a, and a defensive lineman, defensive tackle whose name I can't remember right now. And I said, Tony, look. The choice is, is, is really stark. Um, you know, we got this defensive lineman from Georgia who's a terrific one-gap player, and a uh, two-gap player. I mean, he's really strong. He's tough. He's long. Um, and, and there's Freeney, you know, who's incredibly fast and incredibly quick twitch and incredibly powerful for a man his size, but he's only six feet tall or six one. And, and I said, what, what's your preference? What's your feeling? Whatever it is, we'll do. And he said, Bill, given a choice between size and speed, I'll take speed every day. <laughs> speed is number one. And I did a study um, the year before we won the Super Bowl, so it would have included Chicago, uh, of the teams that used Tampa 2, and I think there were about four or five at that point in time. We were by far the fastest. We, we compared 40 times. We were by far the fastest. We were also – the shortest in many, in many respects, but that didn't bother us. We did a study and found out that it just correlated to shorter careers for shorter people. But, but you know, it, it didn't, it didn't matter. And, and you have to buy into the philosophy, which the late great John Tierlink, uh, God rest his soul, uh, our great defensive line coach taught, which was we're going to get to the run on the way to the passing. The first step is the most important step. First step, boom, go. Get up the field. And when you find the ball, retrace and go get the football. So, uh, you know, you're going to give up some draw plays. You know, you're going you're to give up some runs. Uh, but, again, we want them to go the long way. And, and, and we think that they'll make a mistake. Uh, the offense will make a mistake that we can capitalize. The other idea of the zone defense means that in, in, the, in large measure, 
the secondary and absolutely the safeties are and the linebackers are facing the, re- the quarterback and facing the receivers. So you get many more interceptions for bounce-offs, for, you know, balls that, that are off target. You get many mm-hmm. more turnovers in, in Tampa 2 uh, because of the zone concept than, than, you, than you would in a, in a, let's say, a, a heavy man blitzky. And I, I would imagine that would also save you with them facing them some pass interference calls as well because the heads are turned right in the right, in the right direction sort of to start out. Their heads are in the right direction. That's right. But you're closing on the ball most of the time. I mean, that, that's, that's, that's the key. Now, it gets harder. Everything evolves in football. It gets harder. And one of my, one of my plans this summer uh, when I'm able to move around a little better than I am now is to sit down and, and, and talk with Tony and others about what, 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 what you do to combat this 53 and a third yard wide um, game because there, you do have to make some alterations, not in the basic concepts, but, but how you key certain things in, in, the, in the defense. But mm-hmm. the bottom line is it, it's, a, it's a great, great defense um, to rush the passer. It's a great defense to play the pass. It's a safe defense. You don't make a lot of mistakes. It's very simple to learn. And you can plug players in when you get injury. Now, you also have to have Freeney and Mathis. You have to have Warren Sapp. Yeah, right. <laughs> there are certain yeah. things <laughs> that you have to have to play the defense. But uh, but uh, you have to have John Lynch and Bob Sanders. You know, it's, 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 it's heavily dependent on on the talent level that you have um but you can go get that talent and the nice thing about it is at least when we were doing it in indianapolis it's changed a little since then um we were drafting guys that nobody else wanted bill parcells said to me one time where did you get all those he used the pejorative phrase meaning little guys where did you get all those little guys how the heck can you play with all those little guys i said well it's true. We used to joke among ourselves that you could introduce the defense from uh, one of those Volkswagen buses that the clowns in the circus <laughs> use. You know, <laughs> they'd all fit in the in the little van. <laughs> but but the fact of the matter is that they flew around, and particularly at home on turf in our building right. and in our division, if you had a lead, boy. Woo. I remember the New York Giants coming in under Tom Coughlin, um, Eli Bowl two, which took, you know, was four years apart because of the schedule. And uh, and the Giants were pretty good then. I think, as a matter of fact, they, they might have one more Super Bowl in them. And we, of course, were very good. And uh, and we blew them out. And the, the the comments from the players the next day were really, really instructive because the giant players were going, wow, man, are they fast. They didn't look that fast on film. Woo, are they right. fast. The combination of the turf and, and the home crowd where you can get off, all of those things uh, lend itself to making that defense better. Well, uh, going back to the Parcells conversation for a second, uh, you are too... Uh, modest to say it, but you know you also have to have Bill Polian to choose the right little short guys. 
And that's what you had to do. It's not just right. You don't, you don't win just because they're short. You win because you get the right short guys. Well, that's true. I mean, it, look, as Marv Levy used to say, systems don't win, people do. But, you know, finding the people and coaching them well, or that's the essence of the, that's the, essence of the business. So you have to be competent at that. If you're not, you're, it doesn't matter what system you use. But if you are, um, in the salary cap era, um, it, because it's simple and because the players tend, there are certain positions that tend to be interchangeable, um, it's, it's relatively easy to find players and, and, and relatively uh, easy, to, to, easy on the cap uh, to keep them. Now, here's the thing, though. And again, this goes back to Tony's ability and every great coach's ability to make the players believers in the system. Um, and while Tony let the coordinators coach, Leslie Frazier and, 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 and others, um, he, was a, he was a, I wouldn't say he was hands-on, but he was a presence with the defense. And, um, and, and so you have to buy in. You have to get buy-in from the players because – and the coaches. Now, there was never any question that the coaches were bought in, but uh, we had a situation later when Jim Caldwell was a head coach where we had a coach on a defensive staff who wanted to change stuff. You know, just – you change one minute thing in the front, that affects everything. It is entirely dependent on everybody doing the right thing all the time. And, uh, and you have to be a believer in it. If you're a believer in it, you believe in it, and you're zealous about it. I am. Um, but if you're not a believer in it, you can't tinker with it. If, if you tinker, uh, you, you'll, just, you'll just follow it up. One quick thing that when we were doing the research for this episode, there was a weird moment – uh, where I think your paths could have potentially crossed, but I couldn't find anything on it. When you took over in Carolina, in his book, Tony lamented as he was building the defenses in 93 and 94 and 92 in Minnesota, he couldn't get an interview in 93 um, as they had one of the top defenses in the league. A, a year later, obviously, you would take over uh, the expansion franchise with the Panthers. Was he in your thought process at all in terms of the short list of candidates in that top drawer, George Young style, as you were looking at to people to take over the Panthers job and lead, lead that club? Yes, he was. Yes, he was. And, and he didn't make the final cut. And that is probably the, the biggest mistake that I, you know, that I've made in football. I wasn't going to make it twice. <laughs> you got to rectify it later. So, yeah, no, it's it's really interesting throughout this entire story. It's like that was a moment when life could have been com- completely different, but it's fun how it all worked out. Well, so moving us along, in 96, Tony would actually get his chance. So you would actually get a firsthand look as a conference mate as he would take over the Buccaneers and becoming the sixth coach in the Buccaneers history. Um by him joining the conference, what what were some of the things that concerned you, or not necessarily concerned you, but one of the things, some of the things you thought he would bring to to Tampa from a football standpoint and and turn that franchise around? Well, I thought that don't forget when he got there, the Tampa Bay Bucks were the laughing stock of sports, not just the NFL. 
I think they were the losingest team in the in the history of of sports. Um, Ray Perkins couldn't resuscitate them. He he, he got them to a, a, a little bit of a of a plateau, and then they then they went backwards, largely because Hugh Culverhouse, the owner, was was not committed to doing what it took to win. He was committed to earning money, and uh, and so when when Rich McKay became the general manager and Tony came in there, I thought, well, we're going to find out how good these two guys really are because this is the toughest job in football. And they went about it in a way that was amazing. I mean, they, they, first of all, uh, they didn't have a quarterback. Rob Johnson ended up being the quarterback. He was a journeyman at best, uh, certainly not an elite player. I don't mean to denigrate him. No, no NFL player is, is not a good player. They're, by definition, they're great players. But within the context of the league, he wasn't an elite player. And, and, and they drafted the Purdue fullback. And, and I thought to myself when they drafted him, wow, I love this guy, but, you know, what's he going to do as a fullback? I mean, the fullback's not really, a, <laughs> a, you know, a marquee position. Well, you know, they played him at tailback sometimes. They played him at fullback. They 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 drafted Derek Brooks, uh, who was, you know, in those days considered a little undersized. Um, they, they drafted Warren Sapp. And, and lo and behold, um, they come in to Carolina right around Halloween, I think. We had had a terrible rainstorm. We had, they still have a grass field there, and they, there had been a college game on it the day before, I think, and it was all cut up. It was a mud pile, quagmire, and uh, they came out there and they ran the ball and they ran the ball and they ran the ball. I can't remember if we won or lost the game, but I know we got our butts bashed in. <laughs> they were tough. <laughs> <laughs> and and and, it, and they played, you know, they played Tampa too, and uh, and and we had a hard time handling Sap. And then they later, you know, they later got the the great rusher from Illinois. They they became a very very sound solid football team, but they were definitely ground and pound. They were not a an up tempo offense. But that was the that was the personnel that they had. They stifled you defensively. They were the best defensive team in the league, as had been the Steel Curtain in the in the seventies. Uh, and and they ran the ball exceptionally well, and they they passed it well enough. Um, they shortened the game. Uh, they put lumps on your head. It was tough, to, you know, to come back the following week after you played them. And uh, and they became a, a terrific team. So I thought at that point, A, Tony Dungy's teaching sound and solid football, and B, he clearly has got control of this team, and he's they're believers, and they they're they're buying into his message. And most importantly, he's winning with a quarterback who's not elite, which is hard to do in the National Football League. You know, you mentioned one other name in the formation and the, and the transformation of that franchise, and, and that was Rich McKay. Uh, you know, you, you and I have both known that family for 
for such a long time, starting with their wonderful dad, John. Uh, and of course, J.K. was our colleague in the AAF. Um, and I remember Rich back when he was a lawyer. Uh, but talk, talk to us about Rich. I know you and Rich are very close. Talk to us about him, not only at uh, Tampa, but talk to me and to the audience about what Rich's significance in the NFL. Well, first of all, he's he's very bright. He went to Princeton. Um, he's a lawyer, went to Stetson University Law School. Um, he worked in the law firm um, that handled uh, the Bucks legal affairs. That's how he came to know Culver House. And, and I think he may have overlapped or or maybe cross paths with Jack Donlan, the notorious management council uh, yes. leader at some point in time. I think we've exacted our Jack Donlan quota on the show. We have for sure. Uh, but Donlan was close to Culver house. And, and so I, I think he probably recommended rich at some point. Uh, rich grew up in the game. He was a punter at, at Princeton in addition to being a, uh, uh, a, a world-class golfer. I mean, he was a, he was a, to make the golf team at Princeton, you got to be darn good. And he was, and still is. Um, and so he's, a, you know, he's a high level competitive athlete and, uh, and a guy that obviously when he first joined the Bucks sought me out and we used to have discussions about the collective bargaining agreement. What could you do? You know, what could you, uh, what could you, uh, how could you, how could you solve this problem, that problem? Uh, have you thought about this? And and I know I wasn't alone. I'm sure many others whispered in Commissioner Tabby Blue's ear, but I said to him at some point, you know, we need to think about getting Rich McKay involved in here. This guy's really, really bright. And, and he's a great guy on top of that. He's funny and, and outgoing and, you know, terrific friend. But he came in and uh, and put together a great scouting staff um, let them do their thing, uh, put together a, a, a solid means along with Tony of, 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 of uh, handling the interior, you know, the, the business aspect of the team and, uh, and resuscitated that program. It went from the worst in all of sports to, uh, you know, on the brink of a, of a Super Bowl. So, uh, you know, strong, strong football background and, so he, uh, soon after John Gruden took over for Tony, it broke his heart to have to let Tony go. I know that because I talked to him soon after it took place. And, uh, and, and then, uh, you know, I said to him at the time, is, you can, can you think of any reason why I, I shouldn't run down there and kidnap Tony and bring him back to Indianapolis? He said, no, God bless you. You're going to win a lot. <laughs> and uh, so uh, the the uh, but he stayed on, and then after that went to Atlanta as the general manager, and now has become the team president. But uh, he uh, soon thereafter became chairman of the competition committee and did a, a magnificent job. And he's been chairman for well over twenty years, I think. Uh, and and he is the, the public voice of the competition committee and does a, a really great job of that. But more importantly, inside the committee, he's a, he's a 
you can see why he's a great executive. He's a great facilitator. He's a great assigner of tasks. He understands who, who's good at what. So, for example, uh, the Pro Bowl. The Pro Bowl is a thorn in the side of the league and a thorn in the side of the competition committee because the league always wants to get the best and the most intelligent game. And as we know, the players no longer want to play in it and they, those that do don't tackle and all like it's a two-hand touch game. But, uh, you know, Jeff Fisher was really good and cared about the Pro Bowl. So he, Rich assigned Jeff Fisher to, to be the expert on the Pro Bowl. Um, when, whenever you make a rule, you're always concerned about unintended consequences. So he assigned me to be the vice president in charge of unintended consequences. So I, I had to analyze I, I had to analyze every every potential uh, rule change and, and and come up with a list of talking points about potential unintended consequences. So all of that um, is that he is certainly without a doubt the most powerful put football person in the league, the most powerful team president in the league, bar none. There's there's nobody else other than owners close to that. And, uh, and and when and if Roger hangs it up, his name certainly will be on the short list for commissioner, whether or not he'll want it or whether or not at that point in time, you know, he, he feels he wants to do it is, a, is another question altogether. But I think he's very happy doing what he's doing right now and, and you know, enjoying uh, his children and potentially grandchildren. And so I, I don't know that the commissionership is something that he's, necessarily interested in but he certainly will be on the short list and he is the preeminent football man along with mark murphy in the league you know so i i was going to comment that there's no way you could grow up in a household with john mckay and not have the kind of sense of humor <laughs> that, that you were referring to both with rich and jk uh um, um but let me let me just sort of pursue that because i would personally i'm I would love to see Rich McKay as the next NFL commissioner. Uh, you know, a guy who deeply understands uh, the, the the game, deeply understands the player's point of view, understands truly understands the collective bargaining agreement, understands the bigger issues. He's a guy who is sensitive to societal issues. I mean, Bill, can you and I? form a draft Rich McKay committee <laughs> that will kick off when, when, when Roger steps down to see what we could do to get the right guy in there. <laughs> Actually, I was, I was part of one the last time around. <laughs> that's true. That's true. That's, that's true. Roger's got a lot to do here. Uh, and, and, and I think it's very premature um, to anticipate Roger stepping down anytime soon. He's still, he's got a lot left on his plate that he that he needs to do and will want to do. So this is this is other than to say that Rich is tremendously qualified. Um, I, I think you, you kind of leave it at that. Roger's uh, Roger's not stepping down anytime soon. Yeah. All right. I'll keep my powder dry. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll give you this one from a fan's perspective. This is one of the greatest moments of leadership I've maybe ever seen in my entire life. Every every year, my mom and I will go and travel for a, I got to start getting used to saying this, Red Tails. 
uh, game uh, to an away venue. And uh, a few years back, we actually went to Atlanta. And what we try to do is we try to get in the stadium as early as possible so we can walk around the stadium and get a vibe for it. So we're usually there right when gates open. And the, I saw Rich McKay do something I've never seen in all the NFL stadiums I have been in, an executive do. He, we, we go into the stadium, and you, I actually saw Rich McKay going from concession stand to concession stand, uh, giving pep talks to all the people who worked in concessions uh, and literally giving them sort of a pump up for today's game. And it was from a from a leadership perspective, it was one of the most amazing sort of magnanimous gestures I've ever seen somebody in that capacity do. So don't know him like you guys do, but uh, was one of the coolest things I've ever seen. Yeah, he's a, he's a great person and a great leader. So moving along in the story of Coach Dungy, by 99, the Bucks were rolling. I mean, they were a perennial playoff team in the NFC. And in 1999, you guys were having an amazing season. Tampa would be having an equally amazing season and would lose a highly controversial NFC championship game to what would become the greatest show on turf with the St. Louis Rams. The Bucks would lose 11-6. to And late in that game, and I think we got a hit on this because I don't know when we'll get to touch it again, but late in that game in the fourth quarter, and you guys might not be connected if this this had been ruled a catch, late in the fourth quarter of that game, I'll never forget this for as long as I live, Sean King threw a pass to Bert Emanuel that was ruled a catch on the field and was later overturned in in replay, and in my mind, cost the Bucs the game. The Bucs were driving had momentum, seemed like they would score. So I don't know when we'll get to do this, but I feel like we have to do this. Bill, what is a catch in the NFL, and why is it so hard to figure this out? It's not. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) But you have to understand understand the rule, and you have to understand how it's applied on the field by the officials. Now, soon there – the play concern – the Emmanuel play was as follows. He had both hands on the ground, both uh, forearms on the ground, dove for the ball, cradled the ball. Uh, he was in complete control of the ball, but a little bit of it um, touched the ground. And on replay, under the rule as written at that time, once the ball touched the ground, it was incomplete, whether or not the player had control of it. Didn't matter. So that off season, we changed it, the so-called Emmanuel rule, and we said if you have complete control of the ball, and it it accidentally touches the ground, and it does not affect your control if you maintain control through the process of hitting the ground, then it's a catch. So, unintended consequences. That opened up Pandora's box a mile wide (laughs) because now we brought replay in and we brought a subjective rule or subjective decision into replay. Replay is designed to handle um, interaction with inanimate objects, sidelines, end lines, pylons, Etc. The the uh, hash marks where the ball is spotted. It is not designed to make judgment calls as to whether or not a ball hit the ground or didn't hit the ground, and certainly not what effect it may or may not have had on the catch. 
that brought the subjective in. So we opened Pandora's box at that point in time. And even though it was only a tiny little crack, I'm going to mix metaphors here. But George Young, as a member of the competition committee, always used to say, if you let the camel's nose into the scent, the tent, pretty sure he'll pretty soon he'll be sitting right in the middle of the table. <laughs> and so <laughs> the camel's nose came into the tent, and yeah, now we yeah. had the subject of decision when a player goes to the ground. Did he have control of the ball, or did he not? Did it? Did it? Did, did it? Its intersection with the ground affect his control of the ball. So replay had to make a subjective decision. Therefore, they were going to be wrong more often, not more often than not, but certainly sometimes they were going to be wrong. All right, let's go back to what is a catch and what isn't a catch. A catch consists of three things. One, complete possession of the ball. You got to catch it. Two, you have to control it. You have to have your hands on it. You have to control it. You have to have it in control of your body. You must be in complete control of the football. And three, if you, uh, you then must, after you control the football, perform what's called an act common to the game, which is lawyer's language, which basically means that you're able to tuck the ball under your arm and run you're able to lower your shoulder and attack a defensive back. You're able to pivot away from potential tackler. Um, the first two parts are really easy. The third one's really easy. And the only difficult part is when a player goes to the ground making a catch. But when he goes to the ground making a catch, we now have the modified Emmanuel rule which says when you go to the ground, you must have possession and you must maintain possession throughout the process of the catch. So now you have the replay official essentially having to make the decision, A, if the ball hit the ground, did the player have control? In fact, the ball, the ground did not affect control. And third, and secondly, did he complete the catch? So that's the, that one little thing about completing the catch is what's really difficult. Right, yeah. Because now it's a subjective decision made by the officials on the field, did he complete the catch? And then it's, it's, it's second-guessed by the people in the, in the booth. And so, like everything else in life, People who didn't understand what I just explained to you and had never heard it explained, read it, or seen it explained with visual aids, which I, I wish I could do for you and show you examples of it, which is what the competition committee sees every year, um, just simply said, I don't like the rule, therefore, I don't know what a catch is. Well, then you're an idiot if you don't know what a catch is. I just explained it. <laughs> Right. <laughs> now you can disagree with how the rule is written. You can disagree whether or not it ought to be officiated by replay. But to say I don't know what a catch is 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 is, is an inane statement. And and it became a buzz phrase. 
battered to death on the internet, you know, battered to death by, by commentators. Um, I hope I didn't show it on the air, but whenever somebody would say it when I was with ESPN on a show I was at, my neck would get red. It's really only when the player goes to the ground in the process of completing the catch that you have an issue. You know how many of those came up a year? Take a guess. How many? You, 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 you guess, Scott. You guess. I will guess. Six. That was the average. Yep. Well, I'm guessing six. You're right. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. They were anywhere between six and ten in a given year. But, so we made a mountain out of a molehill. But the most consequential one after the Emmanuel play was the play in the Pittsburgh-New England game. I forget the tight end's name right now. But he made a catch, um, caught the ball, had possession, turned around, dove for the end zone, crossed the goal line or came very close to it, maybe to the one-yard line. The ball hit the ground. He rolled over came up with it, game over, Pittsburgh wins and uh, because it was the last play of the game. And, and, the, uh, and I believe it was, it was certainly deep in the fourth quarter and, and uh, replay overturned it because he didn't complete the play. That created a furor which, you know, just overwhelmed all of football. So the competition pretty went back and and redesigned the rules. So now if you make an act common to the game, that supersedes whether or not you went to the ground, basically. Um, but it's still tough to do. Um, there was a famous play uh, in the New England-Buffalo uh, game in December, three, three years ago, I guess. Um, in fact, it, 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 Buffalo was in the playoff hunt, I think, at the time. In any event, uh, Funches, I believe it was, made a catch in the corner of the end zone, last play of the first half. Um, touchdown, it's going to make, uh, put Buffalo ahead 17 to 10 at the half, I think. And they were clearly out playing the Pats. I guess the Pats won the Super Bowl that, that year, but that's neither here nor there. And, uh, and so, um, Jim Nance and Tony Romo are doing the CBS broadcast, and I'm, I'm on the, uh, 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 ESPN broadcast, radio broadcast, uh, with uh, with Mark Kesticher, I think, and uh, so we say touchdown. You know, okay, half's over. Hold on, New York's coming in with a replay. Uh, they show the replay and they rule no catch. Buffalo has to kick a field goal, and 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 and, and you know they get three instead of seven, end up losing the game. And so the, the booths were next door to one another. So I went into the CBS booth with Tony and, and, and Jim, and they were kind enough to let me come in. And we watched the replay in the booth. And all of us said, that ball didn't move an iota. It moved while it was in Funchess's hands. It, it, it might have moved a couple of millimeters, just a couple. He never lost control of the football, never. But the replay official said the ball moved, therefore no catch, which was the height of absurdity. Yeah. So they've changed it now. They've changed the mechanics. There are so few plays anymore that unless it's a game changer like the Pittsburgh game or the New England happened to be New England in both games, it's neither here nor there either. 
but the, the the fact of the matter is that unless there is that that game changing circumstance, it pretty much goes unnoticed. But uh, it, it, again, everybody knows what a catch is, uh, except those that don't bother to listen or study. Well, and I f- I feel I would be remiss if I didn't say this about the Steeler catch. That was Jesse James and my wife, my father-in-law, my family will kill me if I don't say this. That was more the world continuing to conspire against Penn State football players. And, you know, had it not been a Penn Stater, that's a catch. So, you know. So uh, another thing that needs to be added here is that Bill and I have had this conversation many times. And I will tell you, his his restraint in expressing how he feels about this was remarkable in that soliloquy he just delivered. (laughs) But, Bill... At the risk of getting you going again, I want to ask you about one other thing relative to replay itself. Talk about stitching. First of all, uh, you have to accept the fact that slow, super slow-mo replay distorts both time and space. Uh, it just does. And, and people who, who know that business will tell you that. That's one of the reasons it's so spectacularly successful in motion pictures and television, because it amplifies the mm-hmm. the uh, the concussive nature of a of a, of a big hit or or a car crash or whatever have you. So that's part of it. The other part of it is that replay was originally designed in its second incarnation, not the first second incarnation, which Rich McCain, John Mara and I were up involved in up to our necks. Um, it is, it is, was designed to correct the obvious egregious error. It was never designed to adjudicate whether the ball moved five millimeters in Derek Funches's hand and therefore he lost control. That's not the underlying philosophy. Now, with with the advent of these super slow-mo replay uh, machines, you can, so people think, take a front view from one camera locale, a side view from another camera locale, a rear view from another camera locale, and an overview from an overhead camera. So you can get pretty close to 360-degree view of the play. You can get it in super slow-mo, and you, you, you can, if you wish, stitch. The, sta- the, 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 the word is stitch, S-T-I-S-C-H. Stitch them together. S-T-I-C-H, excuse me. Right, yes, that's good. Yeah, and then uh, arrive at a conclusion. Now, when it's clear cut, when the ball came out, for example, which you can only see in the rear view, that's fine. You got a clear cut replay. Overturn or or confirm, doesn't matter. Uh, When a line's involved or a pylon's involved, as is always the case and was originally the case with replay, fine when you take a look at all those views and if you have one clear cut one make a decision based on it here's where stitching 
gets my goat and I think gets us into a lot of trouble. When you don't have a clear-cut view, but you say, based on the predominance of what I see on, all, on three of these four, I'm going to overrule. In my view, you're wrong. You're absolutely wrong. Because that's like trying to say, intelligence source A told me this, intelligence source B told me that, intelligence source C told me that, intelligence source D didn't have anything to say. But based on what I heard from A, B, and C, right. I believe that the following is true. That's right. not what replay was designed to do. Not at all. So I, I am a, a, you know, just unrequited uh, zealot to do away with stitching. And I also think that we're fast coming to the time where unless you use a challenge, replay ought to be in real time only. If you use a challenge, you can go to super slow-mo. But in real time, that's all. Take a look at it. Look at the replay in real, you know, in, 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 in just as it's, as you saw it previously. And then, and, and if you don't, don't, if you don't have a clear cut answer, don't do it. Because, you know, we did not design the game to be officiated by replay. And I know that replay zealots want it to be officiated by replay. Coach Shula believed at the dawn of, of the incarnation of replay that we could get everything right by, or, or get the predominance of plays right by using replay. That hasn't proven to be true. Well, it's one of those strange things in life where as technology gets better, the complexity of how you review things is going to get worse because you're going to have more cameras, better quality footage, better ability to stitch things together, and it could turn into the Zapruder film where you can make anything look like anything. Exactly correct. Well said. Better said than I. You turn it into the Zapruder film. And maybe, Bill, maybe this is me to you turning me into you, but this is where technology isn't a good thing. Like, just advancing to the next technology and things isn't always the best thing. Just hang on a second, though. I have to get this in. There were definitely multiple gunmen on the grassy knoll. <laughs> I'm an old guy, so let me make this historical reference for those who don't know what we're talking about. The Zapruder film is a... Uh, a, a homemade uh, camera film uh, done by a man named Zapruder of the, the assassination of John F. Kennedy in Dallas in 1963. So if you're, if you're someone who is not necessarily conversant <laughs> with history, that's what we're referring to. And, and if you and if you want, uh, uh, if you want a very straightforward, you know, unbiased view of that, rent Oliver Stone's JFK. <laughs> Oh yeah, no, that's 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 certainly the documentary source on the Kennedy assassination. For those of our listeners who who don't get the historical references, the Pruder film was notoriously inconclusive. But his head did go back. <laughs> it did, just from the D angle. I don't know. We don't need to, we don't need improved technology for everything. Stitching is a terrible idea for a lot of other reasons and just things we shouldn't do. But so, all right. Well, as, as we move through the rest of Tony's career with Tampa, uh, post the sort of Bert Emanuel catch 
issue in the NFC Championship game in 99. The Bucks would lose in the playoffs to the Eagles in subsequent years in 2000-2001, leading to a narrative, and I thought this might be another fun thing to potentially be dismissed, or it could be legitimate, but it led to the narrative that the Bucks couldn't win when the weather turned below freezing. Do you think there's anything to an idea like this where it's like dome teams can't win on the road outside in the playoffs, hot weather teams can't win in cold weather environments in December, January, you know, because the weather turns bad? Do you think that's a legitimate thing or is that just more media fodder? It's it's 90 percent media fodder is 10 percent of it that is um, to some degree applicable. It's called the climatization. Uh, when you're in a warm climate and you go into a freezing cold climate uh, and you haven't taken time to acclimate to it, um, you can, practically speaking, I don't want to get into the physiology of it, but practically speaking, it can have an effect. Uh, and, it, and it's not psychological there is some physical aspect to it. You burn more calories trying to stay warm uh, than you do when it is warm. It's, it's really that simple. So uh, you do have to acclimatize. Um, and so um, the, the famous Los Angeles Rams coming to play the Minnesota Vikings in the playoffs in the, in the, in the dear old days of, Metropolitan Stadium in Minnesota when it was two above or teams going into Green Bay at the end of the year when it's when it's two or so been there done that with the Carolina Panthers it's true ten <laughs> percent of it is true you do have to acclimatize so um, there are ways you can do that most teams now have an indoor facility and so if you're going to play in a cold climate um, and you're in either a southern climb or you are in a moderate uh, weather situation like we had in Indianapolis, open the doors. Every, every indoor facility has large garage doors, and many of them. Uh, so you, you open them, you let the wind come in, you let the cold come in. Uh, the, the, the HVAC systems now are um, to the point where you can, uh, you can actually pump in cold air and so uh, you do that, you acclimatize. There's far less of it now than there used to be. Uh, when, and, and when you get into the, into the zero or, or negative temperatures, um, you do have to take precautions, long sleeves, Vaseline to ward off uh, frostbite, uh, lots of soup, hot soup on the, on the sidelines, uh, the heaters going 100 miles an hour on the bench, uh, you know, the, the hot benches, so to speak, yeah. you can, you can do that uh, and acclimatize teams that don't uh, specifically the Los Angeles Raiders in 1990 uh, when they came to Buffalo to play in the championship game, it was a balmy day in Buffalo. It was about 19 and, and, and maybe a little <laughs> sleep. Uh, and, and, and they, <laughs> They didn't want to go out on the field and warm up. I mean, if you're prior to the game, they were, whoa, they're just in the tunnel shivering, you know. Uh, so it, it has its effect. 
but it, but it didn't affect the Dolphins, for instance, because Coach Shula would, would preach to them that they had to get ready and acclimatize and what have you. So um, it, it does have a, an effect, and if you're not prepared, it will have a major effect. By the end of the 2001 season, even though the Bucks had been to three straight playoff appearances, uh, Coach Dungey was the most successful coach in Tampa Bay history with a record of 54 and 42. The Bucks would uh, move on from Coach Dungey and actually trade for John Gruden, potentially as a setup for uh, using uh, the trade the Colts had done for Bill for you a couple years earlier as a as a baseline. They would actually trade two ones and two twos to acquire Coach Gruden, um, and to that end. Uh, uh, Rick, I think you had a question about sort of this in the proximity to, you know, Denny Green being let go in terms of what it meant sort of globally. Yeah. Uh, so, Bill, you know, I'd, I'd like your take on this. Um, owners are owners and they can do whatever they want. Uh, but, tr- you know, traditionally, if you look at a, a record like Tony's uh, a, and a record like uh, Denny Green's in Minnesota. Uh, other than Andy Reid, I can't think of a time, and perhaps you can, when coaches who had records like that, such consistent winners, best uh, head coaching record in the history of the franchise, uh, you know, were terminated. I need to ask: Do you think there was a different standard? that African-American coaches were held to than uh, white coaches? No, I don't think so. I I think that uh, owners sometimes do very unfortunate and very undeserved things simply because they're driven by public pressure, by media pressure, by people to whom they speak, that, that don't know anything about football, sometimes by people in the organization that don't know whether it's blown up or stuffed, as the, as the saying goes, and they make bad decisions. It's really that simple. Uh, I don't think – now, I can't speak for Tony, and, and unfortunately none of us can speak for Denny because he's unfortunately passed away, but, but you know, we can get Tony's take on that at some time in the future uh, when we have him on as a guest. But um, uh, my my feeling is that it, it had little to do with race, and and a lot to do with it, just a dumb decision. Uh, he he quote couldn't win the big one close quote. That's as dumb as it gets. But uh, you know, as Tex Ram used to say, you can't legislate against dumbness. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm a testament to that. So am I. <laughs> but Scott, Scott, in your in your case, Scott, it did pass the lower house. It, it did. Well, here we go. So uh, for the audible today, it's that time, guys. And to be a testament to legislating dumbness, I'm going to ask a question that I know Bill hates doing this stuff, but it's fun. And I think we should probably do it. So we'll do it. Bill, kill me if you hate it. Um Little known fact, while Coach Dungey was with the Buccaneers and you and Coach Moore were with the Colts, you guys never played against each other. And so looking back at sort of the 99 season, you know, a lot of people focus on that greatest show on turf, the St. Louis Rams offense. 
your offense in Indy in 99 was outrageously good. Um, breaking records, strongest offense in the AFC. And had that game against the Titans gone a little different, you could have potentially seen a Super Bowl matchup between the 99 Bucks and the 99 Colts in the Super Bowl. So total hypothetical. How do you think that one would have played out? Well, I, I can tell you what my thoughts were as to strengths and weaknesses. I don't know who would have won the game when it was all said and done. Um, Tampa Bay, no question, was the better defensive team. They held the greatest show on uh, on turf to 11 points, for goodness sake. So, I mean, they were a stifling defense. Um, and, and uh, you know, they had a solid run game. So they were going to challenge us in that regard. Um, we were just becoming ourselves. Don't forget we had been uh, 3-13, and 13, I believe, the, the previous year. And, uh, and so we were just starting to become ourselves. And the, the catalyst for our defense – which I think would have done well against them because, as I said, they didn't have a lot of offensive firepower in the passing game, was Cornelius Bennett. And he had blown out his knee and subsequently ended his career uh, in, in the last game of the regular season against Jackson against uh, Buffalo uh, in a meaning, what, what turned out to be a meaningless game. So... Um, we lost our defensive catalyst and that loss coupled with the fact that it was Peyton's first playoff game and the first playoff game for many of our guys, um, you know, uh, 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 probably a toss up, probably a toss up, but Bennett was so important to us that I don't know if we'd have had enough defensively when it's all said and done. Does that answer your speculative history question, Scott? It does, and it actually went far better than I thought it would. I always get nervous when I go into sort of speculative history on the show, so uh, we've, I'm sort of wiping my brow. We've escaped. <laughs> well, you, you may be a lot, you're just lucky that you're in Virginia and Bill's in North Carolina, you know. Having said that, as I'm thinking back, we had Marshall Falk that year. And so for Marshall Falk to attack his own defense might have tilted the game in our favor because he was almost unstoppable in the open field and he was a phenomenal, phenomenal receiver. Yeah. So yeah. now that I think of it, we might have had enough to overcome it. Um, it, and, it and, and, and we could have schemed to stop their run game, that's for sure. See, that's what I th that's what I thought you were going to say cuz if you look at those Bucks teams, they couldn't score. I mean, had those Bucks teams and granted they went through a litany of non-elite quarterbacks, but had those Bucks teams been able to, you know, average in the high teens, say 17, 18, 19 points a game, coach Dungey may still be in Tampa now. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. 
All right. Well, that is a wrap, gang, on episode one of Tony Dungy's Life in the NFL and Life Outside of the NFL. We hope you enjoyed it. If you have any thoughts, feedback, anything you'd like to hear in a future episode or other players, games, coaches, things you'd like us to focus on on Bill's career in the league, please let us know. We really appreciate all the great feedback we've gotten thus far. Feel free to follow us on Twitter at uh, Polian. We're here for you guys. Thank you so much for the support. And that is a wrap on this episode. Talk to you guys soon. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.